Welcome to the 2023 edition of the Fern Podcast, As the Season Turns. Released on the first of the month, each episode will follow the changing landscape of the seasons, from the moon and the stars to the tides and the trees. I'm Leah Landers, author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide, and this podcast is a collaboration between myself and Fern, makers of small batch organic perfume. I'm so delighted to be launching a new year and to be welcoming some new voices. Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, will be joining us with magical tales from the plant world. Folk musician Gwilym Bowen Rees will play a series of Welsh folk songs for us, chosen by him to reflect the changing seasons. And sound recordist Alice Boyd will be travelling the UK throughout the year to collect field recordings for each month's meditation. I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing their contributions as much as I do. We hope that this brief guide to the month ahead will help you to settle deeper into the seasons. The Sunrise in January You really don't need to be much of an early riser at all to catch dawn in January. In fact, you might struggle to miss it. We are only just past midwinter, and the North Pole is still at almost its maximum tilt away from the sun which makes for longer nights the further north you are. On the 1st of January, the sun rises at 8.20am in Padstow in Cornwall, while up in the far north in Inverness, it doesn't rise until 8.58am. You'll be halfway through your morning before you see it come up. Obviously, there is a large possibility of grey and dull sunrises in January. When there is cloud cover, dawn slinks in, a slow shift from battleship grey to pewter, and there is plenty of that in this wintry month. But when the clouds part, January's sunrises can be spectacular. They break across a silvery landscape, outlining every frosted blade of grass. When the sun is low in our sky, its light has to travel through more atmosphere before it reaches us and this leads to more of the blue, violet and yellow wavelengths scattering. Red and orange are left behind, and this is why we can see some spectacular corals, pinks and golds in the cold January sunrise. It rises, though, to quiet, and its light brings no great change. Very few animals are out and about on a frozen January morning, most preferring to make use of stores and to conserve body heat but by the end of the month there will be one notable exception, the blackbird. Blackbirds are the earliest of the songbirds to begin to mark out their territories in song, a lone flute-like voice staking a claim in the still and cold. This is the first prelude in a tune that will slowly swell and build and gather other birds until it reaches its orchestral peak in spring. It is the very earliest outpost of the Dawn Chorus. In the Pond Perhaps the single most useful thing one person can do to help wildlife is to build a pond in their garden or allotment. There was once a dew pond, a shallow pond, usually man-made, replenished with water from the dew, 
in the corner of every field for livestock to drink from. They would be used not only by cows and sheep, but by amphibians, insects, small mammals and birds. Most have been drained or filled in, and of those that remain, around 80% are thought to be polluted or degraded, mainly by the nitrogen and phosphorus from agricultural fertiliser. Fortunately, garden ponds are insulated from many of the problems that countryside ponds face, and it is remarkably straightforward to create a pond that quickly becomes an intricate ecosystem, supporting dozens of species. The phrase, build it and they will come, could have been written for ponds. Just make one and sit back, and you will see. This year we follow the year in the garden pond, and all of the wonderful things that are happening above and below the surface. There are a few signs of life in the January pond. Many garden birds visit it to drink and wash, and mammals will stop by to drink. During mild weather, hedgehogs may even emerge from their sleep to take a drink. But other than that, all appears calm. Beneath the sometimes frozen surface, there is life, but it is at its lowest ebb. The bottom of the pond is full of decaying sticks and leaves, and nestled within it are the larvae of beetles and insects, and even adult water beetles, which will occasionally return to the surface briefly to take in air. Nymphs of caddisflies, dragonflies and mayflies are down there, and create a kind of antifreeze that prevents their bodies from freezing and their cells from rupturing. Dragonfly eggs nestled in the mud are in diapause, a type of hibernation that prevents them from hatching until the weather warms. Life is suspended, but not for long. The winter thrushes, field fares and red wings. These birds migrated to the UK from their northern European breeding grounds in September and October, searching for milder weather and more abundant food. But January often sees a micro-migration, as cold weather drives them into towns and gardens. Normally they spend their days in arable fields and scrub and at the edges of woodlands, always travelling as a flock. But when the going gets cold, you may suddenly spot 10 or 12 unfamiliar birds in a garden tree or picking over your cotoneaster. Field fares are large birds the size of a blackbird with a white underwing. Red wings are smaller, with an overall reddish-brown appearance and a red underwing. They like berries and love apples, so throw one onto the lawn when you are out feeding the rest of the birds. Look out for the first shoots of bulbs, proving that the season is turning under our feet. Hazel tree catkins starting to appear. These are the hazel's male sexual organs and will disperse pollen while the tree is bare and there are no leaves to hinder it. Look also for the tiny red female flowers on the stems, ready to catch it. Hellebores, which are called Christmas roses but rarely do anything at Christmas, start to flower now. Float a couple of flowers in a bowl of water to appreciate their intricacies. In the herbarium, the writer lights a candle. She opens a book, begins to run her fingers under the lines. She touches the leaves of the plant before her, 
Today, it is mugwort, gathered from the woods. Mugwort is one of the most magical plants, and the number of common names attests to its long history and range of uses by humans. Some of my favourite names are Old Uncle Harry in Somerset, Smotherwood in Lincolnshire, and Sailor's Tobacco in Hampshire. This last because the leaves were often smoked. The reason for this is Mugwort's mild psychotropic effect. In Latin, it is called Artemisia vulgaris, the close relative of Artemisia absinthium or wormwood, the hallucinogenic ingredient of absinthe. Mugwort is the first plant of the Nine Herbs charm, an old English charm from the 10th century. Here, mugwort is called Una, the first of all herbs, or the mother herb, and in some places it is known as motherwort. The Latin name Artemisia vulgaris associates mugwort with Artemis, the moon goddess, and so with women. As well as bringing insight and clarity to our dreams, mugwort offers healing properties for women in particular, drunk in a tea or added as an aromatic herb to food. You can find mugwort on any wayside, waving dark green leaves that flash a silvery underside, offering comfort to weary travellers who might place a leaf or two in their shoe. Mugwort is known as grey bullwand in the Shetland Isles, and here as elsewhere it was used in the past to flavour beer. The Vikings learnt this trick from the Celts whose lands they invaded, and a pitcher or three of mugwort ale might well have been responsible for the riotous behaviour of Viking berserkers, driven wild by mugwort-induced visions. Shetland is now the home of Upheliar, a fire festival with its roots in old mischief nights, when men would drag barrels of burning tar through the streets. These were eventually banned by the Victorians for being too rowdy, drunken and dangerous, and were replaced with the Viking-inspired and ironically better-behaved tradition of today. I imagine the mugwort ale flowing down through the centuries, forging mischief and wildness from Viking parties to tar-barrelling hijinks. January's Island, the Shetland Isles. 60 degrees north, 1.2 degrees west, 170 kilometers northeast of mainland Scotland, 220 kilometers west of Norway. Population 23,000, 16 inhabited islands of 100 in total. This month in Shetland, Britain's sub-Arctic archipelago, the days are short and cold but the people here know how to make it through. Further south, we no longer widely celebrate the candlelit festivals of Epiphany and Candlemas, but in Shetland it's far too cold, dark and stormy not to light a big old bonfire. On the last Tuesday of the month, the crowds gather in Lerwick, Shetland's capital, for mainland's celebration of Upheliar. Mainland is the name of the archipelago's largest island. Preparations, which take pretty much all year, are kept top secret, with particular excited speculation around the Geyser Jarl, 
the chief of the festival. The Jarl, dressed each year as a different figure from Norse mythology, will lead the torch-lit procession through Lerwick's darkened streets, from the prow of a wooden replica longship, lovingly hand-built over the past few months. Once the ship has been dragged to its resting place, the Jarl dismounts to dry land, and the torch-bearers cast their torches in, creating a roaring inferno as the crowd sings. Though this highly organised festival has Victorian roots, the essence of the thing is much, much older. Shetland was once Zetland, and for centuries shared much more culturally with Scandinavia than it did with Britain. This is partly to do with its long Viking occupation, of course, but also perhaps to do with Shetland's weather and wildlife. On long winter nights, you may just see the merry dancers, the aurora dancing overhead, with humpback whales and orcas passing through below. Arctic nomads come to rest here, including snowy owls, bearded seals and gear falcons. And each year in winter, Shetland sees spectacular gatherings of eider and long-tailed ducks, sheltering from treacherous conditions in the far north. You may wish to pause the podcast here for a moment while you find yourself somewhere warm and quiet to close your eyes, sit back and settle down just for a minute into this month's found sound. Hampstead Heath, North London. The day is sunny, snowy and cold. Listen out for snow melting from a tree branch, the tinkle of a bell on a dog's collar, the croak of a crow and an exciting sledge ride. January's Perfume Ingredient This month in Fern's Somerset Studio, the team are enamoured by Osmanthus, a bright yellow flower beloved in China, 
where each autumn it brings the scent of peaches and apricots to almost every garden and, if legend is to be believed, to the moon, where a great Osmanthus tree grows. This enchanting note features in the Winter 23 fragrance, released at the Winter Solstice. Blended with sweet orange, cool rosemary and musky ambrette, Osmanthus gives a rich florality to the scent, like a low winter sun glancing off ice, or moss, or the boughs of an evergreen tree. The fragrance takes inspiration from the myriad greens of winter, and from the season's mythology and magic. The Sunset In January, the afternoon fades and sidles into an early night, a slow ebb that can feel exhausting. It doesn't help that winter nights are unavoidably cold and bleak, though do look out for those crystal-clear freezing ones when the stars seem impossibly bright. At this time of year, I like to remind myself that many northern mammals are in hibernation or pretty near it tucking themselves away until things get warmer in the spring. And though there are things I don't want to miss, it's true that once the sun has set, I'm often longing for sleep. Nowadays, we tend to sleep in one long shift, but until a couple of hundred years ago, people across the world divided their sleep into two, the first sleep and the second. In between came a period known as the watch, two or so hours of wakefulness around midnight. Dimly lit by the moon, the stars, a crackling fire or tiny rush lamps, this was a time for everything. People attended to various household duties, took advantage of the darkness to perform dark deeds, or spoke with their God in intricate prayer rituals. Most often, though, the watch was a social time, a chance to stay in your warm bed and catch up with your bedfellow, who might be a spouse, lover, sibling or friend. For many, of course, this did mean intimacy, but it was also a time for informal chatting without the social restrictions of the day, a cosy and gentle hour cocooned by the dark. Moon Phases January's full moon falls on the 6th of January at 8 minutes past 11 in the evening. January's full moon is known as the wolf moon or the stay-at-home moon. Full moons rise near sunset, opposite the sun, so in the east as the sun sets in the west. The last quarter falls on the 15th of January at 2.10am. Last quarter rises around midnight and is at its highest point as the sun rises. The new moon falls on the 21st of January at 8.53pm. The new moon rises at sunrise in the same part of the sky as the sun and so cannot be seen. Astrologers believe that the new moon is a quiet contemplative time before a phase of growth each new moon has its own energy, depending on the zodiacal sign that it is in, and the Capricorn new moon, which is this month's, is said to rule ambitions and goals. Finally, the first quarter is on the 28th of January 
at 3.19 p.m. The first quarter moon rises near noon and is at its highest point as the sun sets. An inn past nightfall. Chilly air seeps under the door. The fire flickers. You find a stool close to its warmth and settle in for the evening. Above the low chatter, you hear the sounds of a tuning guitar. This song is called Teg Wauriodd Boredith, which means a fair morning dawned. It's a traditional Welsh Christmas carol, but for some strange reason in Wales, we sing our carols in January. So here goes. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. Please do like and subscribe. All episodes are released on the first of each month. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also enjoy my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2023, which this year is themed around the solar system and the signs of the zodiac. It's also available as an audiobook, read by me, Leah Lane Dertz. As the Season Turns is created by Fern, Fern is an organic fragrance maker based in Somerset. Working with the rhythms of the seasons, they blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year. Each fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern production ledger. 
To join the ledger and find out more, visit www.fern.co or visit the link in the podcast description. The podcast is produced by Jeff Bird. Catriona Bolt is the researcher, working in-house as part of the Fern Studio team. In addition to my own contributions, Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, wrote and read The Herbarium. Alice Boyd is the sound recordist and designer who is travelling the UK through the year to make field recordings for each month's found sounds. And the folk song and intro music were played and selected by Welsh musician Gwilym Bowen-Reese. <laughs>